It's Muppet Turkey with a whole entire episode of the Nancy Walker episode of The Muppet Show. Welcome back, everyone. So glad you're here. I'm David Levy. Here today with me are... Michal Richardson. Adam Grossworth. And Christy Bauer. And... Oh, and, and Elvira the Puppy. Puppy! <laughs> yes, I, since our last episode, adopted a three-month-old Jack Russell Chihuahua mix puppy. So you might hear some jingling or snorfling or... Uh, <laughs> snorfling. Chew sounds. I'm keeping her in my lap to keep her as quiet as possible, but puppies are unpredictable. So we'll see what happens. I'm just picturing you like like Rolf in the What a Wonderful World. Mm-hmm. It's very close. And our reaction is identical. So. <laughs> <laughs> Puppy. Uh, so uh, a little addition um, after we recorded uh, last week's episode, I made, you know, some would say too many. I would say exactly the correct number of clown gifts. So um, <laughs> if you don't normally look at our show notes, I would encourage you to go to Muppeturgy.com and uh, check out our show notes. An answer for once and for all. How many get clown gifts? <laughs> yeah. It's too many clown gifts. Yeah. Uh, this is not too many clown gifts. This is exactly the right number of clown gifts uh, for all of your clown gift needs. This week, we are talking about season two, episode six of The Muppet Show, which was produced the week of June 28th, 1977. There's a little confusion over the air date this week. We're just going to be transparent about it. Um, we've talked before how the show was syndicated, and so it didn't air um, in the United States um, at the same time in different markets, which imagine if like they had social media and people were actually talking about this, it would be so confusing. Muppet Wiki generally lists the New York City air dates. That's what we go by. And also, um, I have a New York Times subscription. So those are the archives I have access to. It's very convenient. The Times for this date says that this was the Bernadette Peters episode, but it also says that for the supposedly right date for Bernadette Peters. IMDb lists an entirely different date, which is also a different day of the week on which The Muppet Show did not air in New York City. So we're just going to assume that The Muppet Wiki is right and that um, something changed at the last minute because newspapers, olden times, things got printed that were wrong and that they couldn't fix after the paper got sent out. Papes. So this episode, we believe, aired in New York City on October 24th, 1977. Hey, it was the sixth episode aired as well as the sixth episode made astonishing. A couple things. Sometimes the newspaper, when I look at it, is super boring. Um, This week, I was struck by two extremely 1977 headlines on the front page. Um, One, Port Authority is reportedly sure that Concorde flights can go on. Apparently, they were very noisy um, taking off and landing from JFK, which makes sense. And the Bushwick area is struggling to avoid becoming another South Bronx, uh, which is funny if you know anything about Bushwick now. And also, fuck you, Robert Moses. On television tonight, and also not always interesting, but tonight it was, um, following The Muppet Show, a new Peanut special, It's Your First Kiss, Charlie Brown. Does anybody remember this? I don't remember this at all. I don't oh. believe that that could possibly exist. Yeah, I think new and maybe never aired again, followed by the Fat Albert Halloween special. You're um, making this up. <laughs> I am not. Wait, it gets better. Followed by Bing. This is in all caps in the TV listing. This is, is there an Bing exclamation Crosby. mark? Uh, no, there wasn't. It was Bing oh. colon, actually. Um, <laughs> Bing Crosby. A special celebrating Bing Crosby's 50 years in show business. And on NBC, a movie called The Night They Took Miss Beautiful. Terrorists hijack an airliner planning to ransom the five beauty pageant finalists on board. Yikes. Uh-huh. Folks, it is on Paramount+. Plus. 
I only did this research like an hour before we started recording, or I would have watched it already. I will report back in the future. Yes, please put that in the corrections for next week. Yes, I may not get to it by next week, but I'm definitely going to watch it. Well, then uh, then here's Nancy Walker, uh, my guess. Nancy Walker was a Broadway beltress, MGM character actress, sitcom superstar, and the director of one of the best worst movies ever made. Born in Philadelphia in 1922 to vaudevillian Dewey Bardo and dancer Myrtle Fleming Lawler, show business was in Nancy's blood. At the age of 15, she got her start on radio, and by 19, she made her Broadway debut in Best Foot Forward. In 1943, MGM made a movie with most of the Broadway cast, plus Lucille Ball, and Nancy found herself in Hollywood. She would have memorable featured roles in two more MGM musicals before heading back to Broadway for her real breakthrough role as Hildy, the love-crazy taxi driver in On the Town. She would spend much of the next two decades on Broadway, netting two Tony nominations for Phoenix 55 and Do Re Mi. Throughout the 60s, she would pop up in guest appearances on television, and in 1970, she landed a recurring role on A Family Affair, and she made her first appearance on The Mary Tyler Moore Show as Ida Morgenstern, mother to Valerie Harper's character, Rhoda. Ida was such a popular character that they brought her back once a year until, in 1974, she became a regular on the spinoff, Rhoda. During that same time period, she was also a regular on Macmillan and Wife, playing Mildred, the Macmillan's housekeeper. Between Macmillan and Rhoda, Nancy was nominated for seven Emmy Awards. In 1976, Norman Lear created the Nancy Walker Show for her, but it only lasted four months. That winter, she started another failed sitcom, Blinksy's Beauties, which you might remember from its backdoor pilot as an episode of Happy Days. And that brings us more or less up to the point where we find her as guest star on The Muppet Show. Throughout the 70s, she directed a number of television episodes, and in 1980, she directed her one and only feature film, The Village People Vehicle, Can't Stop the Music. I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention her role as Rosie, the spokesperson for Bounty Paper Towels, in a series of TV ads that ran from 1970 to 1990, and yes, she was Dorothy's Bornex Aunt Angela on a couple of episodes of The Golden Girls. Uh, Nancy Walker died in 1992. So, uh, who has Nancy Walker feelings? I cannot overstate how ubiquitous those commercials were. It, it's not exactly the same because she was a celebrity in her own right, though to me she was only the bounty paper towel woman as a child. But it, it's, I think the best equivalent is... Um, is like flow from progressive. I was in just going to say like, that. <laughs> like how, just in terms of how much they are on, they were just on like so much and for so long or like the Verizon guy or, you know, like any of those, they were just constant. And I, that was all I knew her from at the time. Like I now I've seen things, other things that she's done since, but yeah, they were, they were everywhere. I'll just say that as a Broadway fan, I was really excited for this episode. I really liked Nancy Walker as a singer and a comedian. And uh, I perhaps set with unreasonable expectations, but we'll get into it. Well, that's a, that's a good segue if no one else has specific Nancy Walker thoughts. Why don't you get David, you've already shared. <laughs> Sounds like you were not a fan. Yeah, I I was really disappointed by this episode. It just, nothing really clicked for me. Like, nothing was particularly bad, but nothing was really a highlight either. So, uh, I'm sorry to say, uh, this does not reach the depths of a Rich Little or a Peter Ustinov, but it's, it's, you know, 
very low on my list of Muppet Show episodes. Michal, how about you? Yeah, there is very little that feels memorable about this episode aside from the finale. I mean, my my overall thought about this episode is it's a little bit of a slog. It kind of goes in one ear and out the other, but it's worth holding out for the last number when we finally get to see Nancy Walker do some singing and dancing. And the rest of the episode uh, just kind of does its thing. There are a couple of solid jokes and the the setup of Vets Hospital and at the dance having to go on at the same time is a funny setup. And it's, I didn't uh, detest it as much as it sounds like David did, but it, it's <laughs> fine. And Nancy Walker seems like she would have been a really memorable guest star if they had given her more of her thing to do. Christy? So I'm not going to say that this episode is good, but I'm kind of obsessed with it. <laughs> because it sort of feels like the Muppet equivalent of the actor's nightmare. Like, if, like down to a weird lecture about nudity in the middle. Like it's just like, it's governed by this weird dream logic that like I, at a certain point after watching it a couple of times was half convinced it wasn't real. Like it's, there's a high concept thing happening that we haven't really seen before on the show. And I love it when they swing for the fences, even when they miss and, you know, God bless Nancy Walker for going along with it because she's really my favorite kind of Muppet show guest star. Like she just doesn't bat an eye. She's just like, yeah, no, this is what it is. We're doing it. That being said, I had swine flu. I have some thoughts about that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the whole, we'll get to it. Just that whole thing in the age of COVID did not read well. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm more with Christy. I I mean, I can, I'm more in the middle, I guess. I, I liked it. I thought it was fine, especially after a couple episodes that I haven't loved. Um, it's not super memorable, right? There's nothing in it that, that I think I'm even going to remember next week. Um, but yeah, I thought it was fun. I thought it was charming. And it's, it's, it's weird for a very specific reason that we'll get to, but that at least it's not like, it's not what were they thinking weird. It's they had to write around a problem weird. And I, I appreciate them going forward at least nancy walker 13 seconds to curtain stand by miss walker are you kidding stand by i can't even stand up (laughs) so that's our cold open where uh for some reason timmy monster is just standing on top of nancy walker and kind of doing this little wiggling dance sure why not i guess when you go on the muppet show just monsters attack you and it's to be expected um as far as the yay evolution there has been no further evolution kermit has been doing this mouth open kind of silent laugh or maybe silent like hey look what we got this week (laughs) it's a nancy walker but yeah no evolution there Stetler and waldorf are late again but it's a different clip where they're rushing into the theater late meanwhile gonzo's trumpet fires bullets or fires one bullet and then he hears another bullet coming back at him from somewhere i guess because the, the theme of the top of this episode seems to be playing with guns is a fun game <laughs> upsetting i don't like it yeah well we'll get to the opening number in a bit yeah i'm up at your backstage so backstage or the first thing we see on stage is that kermit has gone home sick and he's left fuzzy in charge everything proceeds to go wrong hey uh huh, maybe you can tell that i am not the kermit the frog you see uh, just moments ago kermit went home He's not feeling very well, uh, so he left me in charge. Oh, no, did you hear that? 
I wonder how sick the frog is. Well, if he put the bear in charge, he's very sick. They're not wrong. Although, continuing in the tradition of Kermit being a terrible producer, he's on the phone with everyone in the theater throughout the show, including with people who are supposed to be on stage at the time that he's on the phone with them. And for once, the fact that nobody is on stage actually seems to matter in the universe of the show. Fuzzy, Fuzzy, what's on stage next? Uh, I don't know what's on stage now. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing's on stage. (laughs) Nothing out front either. The audience is leaving. You know, it's funny, as bad an idea as it is to put Fozzie in charge, I've been thinking and thinking, I don't know at this point if there's anyone else who makes more sense to put in charge. Scooter? Well, it's like, the who who is the host and who's in charge are two different, two different questions, right? Right. right. Uh, but like, I don't know, I feel like Sam is the only one with any like ounce of responsibility. We have still not established what Sam's job is. <laughs> Certainly not running a show. Well, it's not Fozzie's job to run a show either. No, but, but I think we are. <laughs> I'm with Christy. I think Scooter should be in charge and Fozzie should be the host. Which is more or less what ends up happening. Scooter's a, a child. Yeah, we learn in this episode that he's, it's not just that he's like a college age kid. He's in right, grade He goes to school. school. <laughs> grade school, high school, well, whatever. He well, goes to school. I, he's in a grade is what I meant. <laughs> because I have this page pulled up of Sam the Eagle's Palisades figure. Um, his job is self-appointed guardian of morals. Oh, there you go. Right. Honestly, the right answer is that Rolf should be in charge, but that well, can't happen for the same reason why Kermit is off this week. Right. <laughs> so while Kermit is off, uh, a, a quick list of things that go awry. Fozzie borks up his introduction of Nancy Walker in several varied ways. At one point, he delegates the introduction to Scooter, who attempts to (laughs) walk in front of the curtain and try to sell magazines to the audience so that he can win a skateboard at school. So, again, don't know exactly how old he is, but a teenager of some sort. At some point, no one's on stage, and Fozzie has to go on and coax the audience to come back and promise them that there's more show. At the Dance and Veterinarian's Hospital, managed to go on stage at the same time. The crew threatens to quit, which accelerates extremely quickly because the lights dim as... Gonzo and Fozzie are having a conversation about the crew threatening to quit. Um, this and- is our first confirmation that there is a crew. I was very mm. excited <laughs> to learn that there are multiple crew members of the Muppet Show and not I'm, just George. I'm relieved for you and for George. Most upsetting of all, Kermit actually shows up as the show closes wearing, I guess, a hospital gown and a little hot water bottle, like just attached to his head. He shows up to fire Fozzie Seeing Kermit come to work sick and hearing that his voice is a little bit altered as he's like trying to talk to the audience while being sick, he's sneezing all over people. Fozzie is repeatedly kissing Kermit's face when he gets his job back. I'm just going to go ahead and give the of its time award to coming to work while sick. So continuing on the Kermit being a truly irresponsible producer and human being or frog or whatever he is. I mean, he's just a singing and dancing and talking frog. That's fine. Yeah, either there are three or four separate phone calls from Kermit over the course of this show, or he's just on the phone continuously the whole time, including one where Piggy picks up and says she was just about to call him, even though she's also just about to go on stage. Or he's just on the phone the whole time and claims to have left Fozzie in charge when that's not true. It does keep ringing. I think I, I, I mean, he's the sort of control freak who would just keep calling in. I, I believe that. There is this really cute scene with Piggy and Nancy Walker, which gets interrupted by a phone call from 
Kermit. I'm no more protective of people than anybody else. I mean, that mother thing is an act. Hi. Oh, hello, Kermit. Oh, Kermit, my Kermit, he's sick. You're sick? Oh, well, listen, Kermit. How did she not know that he was sick? Yeah, I want you to drink lots of liquids. No, don't eat anything. Starve a fever, feed a cold, right? Get into bed, turn the electric blanket up way up high, and I'll be right over with some chicken soup. Listen, what have you got? What kind? Oh, dear. No kidding. That's the worst. Oh, no. He's got the swine flu. Swine flu is no joke, y'all. I I had it the last time there was a big resurgence of it, which was like, I want to say it was either 2008 or 2009. I mean, it it knocked me on my ass for like three weeks. It was, I think, the sickest I've been in my adult life. So, so yeah, if if, if Kermit's got it and he's giving it to everybody, that's bad news. (laughs) Yikes. Yeah. That's horrible. I don't know about them, about her bringing him chicken soup from the theater. That seems alarming, all things considered. Yeah, when she says, I'll be right over, she hasn't even been on stage yet. Oh, I I meant where the chicken's coming from. Oh, I see. Yeah. All right. None of this is not disturbing. (laughs) I mean, I eat all the things, but I feel like if I worked at the Muppet Show, I might feel differently about it. Well, we know that Muppets eat meat. They talk about it all the time. That's true. They're constantly taunting Piggy with their delicious bacon recipes. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and the food uh, is constantly attacking the Swedish chef as he tries to cook it. Fair. One sweet thing that happens between uh, Scooter and Fozzie this episode is that uh, Scooter hands Fozzie a note to reassure him that he can go on and introduce the finale. Oh, all right, dear Fozzie, I just want to tell you what a pleasure it was to work with you on your show. You're really terrific. The frog's been holding you back. Nancy Walker! Ah. You ready to do the introduction now? Oh, I sure am. I feel great. Yeah, you can read it if you want to. Ah. I don't have to read it. I wrote it. That's so sweet. (laughs) Also, the way he says you can read it if you want to, like he's six years old, is just wonderful. And I'll say that Fozzie has about two speeds. He has his clueless and overconfident and his horrifically anxious and upset and it's it's hard to see him suffer through this entire episode so it's it's nice that he gets that little moment towards the end so we should say that this all happened because um jim henson couldn't be there for a chunk of the taping so um we get one scene with kermit and one scene with rolf and and that's it and so this was their right around which you know as these things go it's not bad this is not relevant to anything except that it's about the backstage the backstage itself there's a like weird but sort of lovely wide low angle shot where we see like the ceiling of the backstage that I don't think we've seen before. Just notable, like as as we get into the season, I feel like we're seeing more angles and pieces of the theater, and I like that. And there will be a gif or something in the show notes. <laughs> curiously music light episode and some of the music barely qualifies as a number uh, our opening number barely qualifies as a number but it's still worth talking about in its weirdness so 
Our opening number is more an opening sequence involving Crazy Harry and some Civil War reenactors. <laughs> More of an opening ambush, maybe. Sure. So, so the the song that underscores the opening ambush is a twelve bar blues standard uh, called "Night Train." Uh, it's from nineteen fifty one. Was written and performed by Jimmy Forrest, and it was a riff on previous blues songs. Uh, there was a, so- a song called "That's the Blues, Old Man" by Johnny Hodges who was an instrumentalist who played with Duke Ellington. And then Duke Ellington had a a song that was a riff on that called Happy Go Lucky Local. So it's just kind of a generally a a riff that you you hear a lot. And several sets of lyrics have been written for it, mostly either about losing or winning back a woman that the singer did wrong. Uh, But there's a version that James Brown recorded in 1961. And I just have to tell you what Wikipedia says about it. His performance replaced the original lyrics of the song with a shouted list of cities on his East Coast touring itinerary and hosts to black radio stations he hoped would play his music, along with many repetitions of the song's name. <laughs> and th- this version uh, was a-, a single, and it uh, hit number five on the R&B chart in 1962 and number 35 on the Hot 100. <laughs> profoundly weird number right like yeah my my only note is jesus fucking christ crazy harry again <laughs> and but also just, the, like, zoned out the soldiers talk a little bit but it's all gibberish mm-hmm. and that was a, a weird choice and i also didn't understand if it was target practice why were there people standing around the target that just seems like really it, dumb like that's that's not safe <laughs> was it gibberish or was it French. No, I mean, I think it was gibberish. Or like fake French. It read to me as like World War One. They were in Fran- Civil War uniform. Know. Yeah, those were definitely yeah. Civil War uniforms. No, I'm sure you're right. I, I mean, I, I tuned out immediately when I realized what was happening. Both <laughs> I would also say that it. fake French is itself also gibberish. Like, <laughs> I, I understand, but like, but, but I... Not to be distinguished from pure gibberish, not to be, <laughs> sorry. Or like mock Swedish, you know. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but at least there's an attempt at a joke. Yeah, yeah. it was hard to figure out what the premise was here, other than they're firing a cannon at a target and keep missing it and hitting a civilian home or a passing airplane and laughing. And then blowing a wall in the actual theater. Yeah. So, like, at least when it's on stage, like, it's a sketch and it's fake, but then actual damage occurs. And backstage afterwards, they're carting off a a dead, open-eyed Muppet away on a stretcher. Bleak. <laughs> it's really dark. Yeah. I mean, 
I don't think we have time to get into it now, but there's like a lot of different schools of thought about whether Muppets actually die or how they die or when they die. Because certainly we've seen plenty of Muppets blown up, eaten, dismembered, who are totally fine afterwards. So maybe it was just that Muppet's time. Maybe he decided he needed to go. He'd been reincarnated the maximum number of times, and that was it. I mean, it's also usually an act. Like, it's usually on stage in service of a sketch, so they're faking it. Yeah. Are they? I mean, Crazy Harry seems to really blow things up. There's really damage. Gonzo certainly, I mean, like... the Phantom of the Opera really, really seems to blow things up eight times a week, and, you know, that's all safe and controlled. I suppose. But I don't think that uh, the Muppet Theater has... That level of safe and sanitary rules in effect. What? (laughs) (laughs) But George. We haven't seen George in in weeks and weeks. (laughs) They're all just standing in their own filth. Hmm. Cool. Speaking of standing in one's own filth. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah, our our UK spot, if you thought it was exhausting that they're really trying to make Crazy Harry happen, just wait until... They're really, really trying to make music all happen. We've been together now for 40 years, and it don't seem a day too much. Ah, there ain't a lady living in the land as I'd swap for my dear old Dutch. No, there ain't a lady living in the land. This is sung by the same Muppet who sang Burlington Birdie from Bo a couple weeks ago. Yes, and yes. apparently this Muppet is called Burlington, Burlington Birdie. Birdie. Yeah. And when he showed up on my screen, I was like, not this dusty asshole British motherfucker again. Like, <laughs> I was so upset to see him. I, I agree, but I didn't hate this song, Qua Song, as much as I hated Burlington Birdie from Bo. Yeah, I I only enjoyed this marginally more because Statler and Waldorf were so weirdly moved by it. Oh no, that's the part I hated the most. Oh, I love but, that it becomes a sing-along. So this is an 1892 music hall song called My Old Dutch that was performed by Albert Chevalier, who was a, a music hall star. He wasn't particularly that interesting, but if you look him up, like all of his hit songs sound like joke music hall songs that you would come up with like in improv, like Watcher or Knocked Him in the Old Kent Road. The, uh, the future Mrs. Hawkins, Appy Amstead. He wrote it with... Uh, Stop making things up. <laughs> we look to you for facts. <laughs> he wrote it with his, his brother, who was writing under a pen name, presumably because he was humiliated by their work. Uh, his brother's name was August, but he wrote it under the name Charles Ingle. And what the My Old Dutch refers to is it's Cockney rhyming slang. Basically, it means wife. It comes from like either Dutch plate, which rhymes with mate, or Duchess of Fife, which rhymes with wife, or Dutch house, mm-hmm. which rhymes with spouse. I Cockney rhyming slang is exhausting. And that's all I'm going to say about it. A- apologies to our Dickensian orphan listeners. One last thing that I'll say about Albert Chevalier, who wrote and sang this right before he died. Now, this wasn't an Ella Shield situation. Um, like, it Aww. wasn't like she was my old Dutch. <laughs> but a couple years before he died, he a- appeared in a play based on the song called My Old Dutch in 1920. No. no. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> just imagine an entire play extrapolated from this song. It makes much more sense to me that these are the UK spots than the hillbillies are the UK spots. Sure. And yes. I, I'm not mad about it. Shall we move on to something more straightforward? Don't lose your confidence if you slip. Just be grateful for a pleasant trip and pick yourself up and dust yourself off and start all over again. Thank you, thank you, Miss Walker. I, I, I feel terrific now. Well, I'm glad you're happy. Yeah. Well, listen, mm. that's just a song. It shows in a lot of trouble. <laughs> the laugh track loves this very sincere song. They do. What's well, not to love, though? This is a great uh, micro genre of Muppet Show song. I enjoy guest star bucks up the sad Muppet. Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite of all time Muppet Show moment, which we won't get to for a while, is in this micro genre. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so this is Pick Yourself Up, uh, music by Jerome Kern, lyrics by a Muppeturgy favorite, Dorothy Fields. Fuck yeah. Oh yeah, fuck yeah, Dorothy Fields. It's from 1936. It was written for the film Swing Time, where it was introduced by Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And a different song from Swing Time won the Best Song Oscar that year, which was the much more famous The Way You Look Tonight. And this is the song, one one of two songs in this bunch that were recorded by noted Joe Rupes with San Frank Sinatra, who recorded this one in 1962. Wait, Sinatra never recorded My Old Dutch? (laughs) 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 Uh, He just sang it in private to his friends. For a a completely different take on this song, I brought someone else's uh, quoting of it. Starting today, we must pick ourselves up, dust ourselves off, and begin again the work of remaking America. But yeah, there were a lot of uh, Dorothy Fields fans at Barack Obama's inauguration. <laughs> yeah, I, I I found that delightful. Oh yeah, my little corner of the internet like very much lit up when that happened. <laughs> I, I love this moment. I was a little disappointed that they didn't let it get bigger. Like this is only a sliver of the song, and I, I mean I like the payoff. I like her saying. Like ending it by being like, well, Fozzie, that's just a song. You're still in trouble. But <laughs> I, I also would have liked it if if we had it sort of evolve into something bigger and have them get up and dance. And like, you know, it was a friend of stair song, for God's sakes. Like, so turning it into this like little mopey ballad is fine, but I feel like it was a missed opportunity. Yeah. Or even just stay like this because like Lena Horn, Lena Horn got a whole song in the dressing room. Right, that was like the whole this, song, this right? Have been longer, it could have even right. been just this, yeah. Yeah, they had so many backstage bits. One of them could have gone in favor of having a longer version of this. Not to be pedantic, because, you know, I would never do that. <laughs> um, I, so at the beginning of this this scene between Nancy and Fozzie, you know, she's saying it's not so bad. The The audience came back, and she she gestures to the audience in front of them in the dressing room. What? Well, who do you think is laughing? And sure, who's on stage? But they're not on stage. I mean, bothered me. <laughs> bothered Here's me something a lot. that we have never considered. What if there is both a diegetic dressing room where they go to prepare and also a dressing room set for when they do sketches that are set in the dressing room? And the dressing room set is on stage. Sure. 
And on that set, they address the problems that are happening backstage away from the view of the audience. Or are they? What if there are monitors on stage? Because they are, in fact, making a TV show with a live audience. This is like a Truman Show situation. Well, or just, or like a Saturday Night Live situation. Or a Christopher Nolan movie. Or a Muppet show. (laughs) Right. So because they're making a TV show, what if the audience can see the scenes in the dressing room? Anyway, also on the dressing room set, there are photos on the wall that were very cute. Yes. Those have been there this entire time. I'm, I'm surprised you're just noticing them. Yeah, I never I just never noticed. They didn't get such they didn't get so much camera time before. Yeah. And one of them is Gonzo in a wig. It's one of their favorite moments to reflect back on. Which right. And one of I the snows, which sort of implies that the snows were like guest stars. <laughs> yeah. It's like if this were if the Muppet Show were a pizza restaurant. It's weird. The set dressing is increasingly bonkers actually <laughs> like they've really taken some time with it in and made some strange choices like the the well, posters advertising the show itself are odd well but also them. in the era of television that this came from of course you know no one w- you couldn't rewind and pause and look at it and they weren't really thinking about things even being in reruns so it was just like a quick blink and you miss it right thing on i couldn't even see it as well as we can see it because it was right HD. yeah no i know it's just fun so our last number is a lovely duet between Nancy Walker and Sweetums. Away you wear your hat. The way you sip your tea. <laughs> the memory of all that. No, no, they can't take that away from me. The way you smile just be. <laughs> The way you sing off key. The way you haunt my dreams. Now, now, they can't take that away from me. So, yeah, this one's a standard. So, I don't think I need to say too much about it. It's by uh, the Gershwins, music by George Gershwin, lyrics by Ira Gershwin. Uh, it was introduced uh, again by Fred Astaire, uh, this time in the movie Shall We Dance? And it was nominated for the best song Oscar in 1937, but it lost out to a song called Sweet Leilani, which had been made famous by Bing Crosby. Bing, (laughs) all caps. It all comes back to Bing! (laughs) Um, (laughs) This is also, I think, the first time in Oscar history that it set the precedent of like like a pleasant but totally forgettable and and now basically lost to history song winning over something that would go on to become a timeless classic. Yeah. uh, Which, you know, we think of over and over has happened, Rainbow <laughs> Connection. Yeah. Also, George Gershwin died before the Oscars, so double bummer. I always remember the date that George Gershwin died because it rhymes, seven eleven thirty seven. 37 It's like, huh. can't forget it. Anyway. He died on free Slurpee Day? <laughs> <laughs> Never even got that Slurpee. You'll have to get it up in heaven. <laughs> Um, <laughs> and now the rest of us will never forget it either. My favorite thing about this is that Sweetums is wearing a tux over his regular costume mm-hmm. of rags. Yeah, I mean, it's everything delightful. about this is my favorite thing. Like, I mean, it's so exciting to see her break out of, you know, she's been doing her backstage hanging around thing, and now she's suddenly very present on stage and very light on her feet. And it's, yeah, it's just so much fun to watch her really throw her whole self into it. And, you know, she's, I think, 4'10". So 
the just the visual of her dancing with Sweetums is pretty hilarious. Which is a gag that she would use to great effect elsewhere in her career as well. Uh, in the show notes, we'll have a clip from McMillan and some where she does a tango, I think, with Rock Hudson, who is also towers over her. Nice. I also was super impressed with how great Sweetums could dance. And, and I, I wrote in our notes, like, wow, Richard Hunt is a better dancer than I might have expected. But then Michal pointed out maybe it's not actually Richard in there. I don't know. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, I was assuming they must have switched him out. I think that there were different takes somewhere he was using his arms and somewhere he was using his mouth. And I was assuming that they were likely different performers. There was enough dancing in there that, I mean, maybe I should be giving Richard Hunt the benefit of the doubt. Maybe he was that, uh, <laughs> that good in the costume and that good of a dancer. And, um, but yeah, I don't know. And I don't know how to check. Never mind that jazz. Listen, Turkey. What? And get out of show business. Yeah, so this episode is also surprisingly light on show business. There was just a lot of backstage. We do, however, have the debut of Luncheon Counter Monster, named for this sketch. Fozzie's behind the counter, and Fozzie's two customers are Nancy Walker and this monster, who is surreptitiously eating everything that Fozzie sets down on the counter. Now, wait, what, wait a minute. What is going on here? What's the matter? What'd you do, break it? Where's the picture? What picture? What picture? She asked you first. You stay out of there. <laughs> now, look, I know I put a picture right here. Maybe you just think you did. I don't think I know. I don't think you know either. <laughs> um, she's fun in this sketch, but it's kind of strange. The sketch culminates in... Fozzie and Nancy Walker sneaking up on the monster, catching him in the act, and Nancy says, hey, save some for me, and takes a bite out of the counter. And she makes it look delicious, so good for her. Lunch Encounter Monster is kind of a, a swamp thing monster with horns and teeth and big bags under his eyes, and mostly he's just this giant gaping maw, and he continues to perform with the Muppets into the 21st century. He's a gorgeous puppet. Yeah, it's a big impressive puppet with a lot of parts like a lot of colors like there's more detail on his face than uh, most of the monsters we've seen up until now yeah. the set of this sketch l- looked exactly like the set of a really terrible production of william Inge's bus stop that i saw in college <laughs> <laughs> so i did have a moment of like trying to imagine that but with nancy walker and fozzy and was that counter edible as monster. well unclear <laughs> might have helped the the swedish chef is also working at the diner this is the first time we've seen the chef outside of his own kitchen right yeah correct (laughs) but he can only transport himself from one kitchen to another (laughs) i guess if the only places he's appeared are kitchens or if this is just an extension of the swedish chef's kitchen right he has a job we don't know very focused (laughs) this is like a like a classic vaudeville gag right like this is not a sketch that they wrote from from whole cloth imagination uh you can totally picture like the marx brothers doing exactly this with harpo in the place of legend counter monster and so it works but i also kept feeling like in some ways it's funnier when it's not a monster right it i definitely like i found it too long and not very funny but the in that clip we played like the comic timing is so perfect with for all three of them that it it made me really happy and i, I wish it had been I guess shorter. Yeah, or that more was also banter. My review of that production of Bus Stop. <laughs> 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 yeah, 
<laughs> well, there's that. But yeah, like in the monster, like fumbles thing, like his his they haven't quite worked out his hands yet. So like he, he like grabs something to eat it. And like Nancy Walker is meant to not notice it, but he definitely like knocks it over first and it's a plastic cup. So it makes a, a big clattering noise. And like, I, I get they didn't have time for another take, but I, I don't know. Like it's, it's not, it's not great, <laughs> but like if it had just been the talkie parts, like they're so good at that. Yeah. There are lots of redeeming elements to this sketch and then some slower ones. Yeah, the fuzzy Nancy Walker rapport uh, reminds me of a slightly less sexualized version of the Phyllis Diller Ralph rapport. I thought that's where you were going. <laughs> <laughs> like, I didn't think they were going to make out, but I would still see a, a, a very tame rom com with them. Yeah, they like they're going to have a multi decade comedy duo routine with a kind of a will they or won't they rapport. They're yeah. the they're the friends in the rom com. They're the they're the Rob Reiner and Carrie Fisher. Yeah, exactly. Write that movie. I don't know who would play Nancy Walker. Or Phyllis Diller. Or, <laughs> or Carrie Fisher. Oh no. Oh now I'm sad. Oh no, we're gonna <laughs> let's move on. Okay. All right. We've got um a two for one. It's a Vets Hospital sketch. It's an at the dance sketch. It's both. So Fozzie has introduced at the dance, but Piggy is on the phone with Kermit saying, I was about to call you when also at the same time, (laughs) she was about to go on stage and dedicate the veterinarian's hospital sketch to him. And uh, she won't go back on her promise. So both acts go on simultaneously. What is this man suffering from? Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's rumbatism. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, by the way, how come we're dancing in an operating room? Because although the song will soon be over, the malady lingers on. (laughs) (laughs) Those are some solid jokes. I love this. Yeah. This is everything I love about both of these recurring sketches mashed up together. It made me so happy. Yeah. I really like the comedic potential of putting two standard sketches together. Maybe we'll see it more often. I do, I do, you know, once again, as always, hate to be pedantic. <laughs> Why are both sets on stage? If Fozzie had prepped for At the Dance, how did the Vets Hospital sketch get there? Piggy or just did the Vets Hospital set get there? Manifested it. Yeah, if Piggy tells a stagehand to do something, you think that stagehand is going to say no? Sure. Sure. And I guess they both just fly in. It's just the wall for one and the chandeliers for the other. So that actually, you know, that that's shockingly realistic. Well, there is usually an overhead light for Veterinary's Hospital, which was not here because of the chandeliers from Atlanta. Right, Dance. right. But which that, I actually just had to go look at pictures to figure out. I was like, did they update the Veterinary's Hospital set for this episode in addition to the Athenians? No, it's just that without that light, it all right. looked different to me. Right, and Vet's Hospital has the sidewalls too, so it doesn't entirely work but i i could buy that they just sort of flew in the walls and rolled in a gurney this was definitely the point at which the like too many cooks quality of it all really started to get to my brain (laughs) oh no quick let's talk about something that's not too many cooks piggy has a better wig now i'm excited for her and all of us and janice is really sounding like janice to me in this one yes for sure like and, like, <laughs> and like <laughs> responding to every single thing with a with a wow, even if it's totally inappropriate. Yeah, 
between this sketch and the finale, you know, there are some parts of this episode that really feel like they are the Muppet Show finding its rhythm. You know, this wasn't entirely a clunker of an episode. I like the the energy of, sure, two sketches are on stage at the same time. <laughs> That's fine. I don't think any of us thought it was a clunker. I just think that it, it never quite congeals. It's, I mean, it's weird. It's unquestionably weird. Yep. Never quite found its wings. Speaking of which, I just called this sketch weird bird thing. Because <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a weird bird thing. There's a whatnot Muppet sitting in his living room. He has a full pair of legs, so you know this is about to get weird. He's listening to his canary sing. The canary uh, is joined by birds who keep showing up in the window to join along for the chorus of whatever this is. And eventually a giant chicken crashes through the wall, picks up the humanoid Muppet, and places him inside the cage the end. There is no dialogue. Arguably, there's not really music either. The birds are doing something, but it's, it's pretty much singing-ish. Like a war chant. <laughs> yeah, this is another ambush, really, um, of note. The wiki informs us this is the same giant chicken costume that Harvey Corman wore for his episode. So that's a fun little tidbit. I just have to say... The wide-eyed and yet still somehow dead expression on the humanoid Muppet, scarier than any of the clowns that we've seen so far. <laughs> There's a couple of whatnots in this episode who'd look different. The 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 fiddle player in um in the UK spot also, like they don't look like regular whatnots to me. And I found them slightly unsettling. Dream logic. Well, as you've pointed out before, they've like tripled the size of the workshop, so they have you know, new people building Muppets, which naturally is going to bring some new design sense into the into play. Yeah, I like that we've been seeing humanoid Muppets with more interesting faces. I like the violinist in that sketch with the, you know, had an interesting looking nose. I don't know. Wasn't opposed to that nose. I, I understand your objection to this Muppet. The expression wasn't quite right. Yeah. Speaking of expressions not being quite right, there is a moment when the chicken like turns to the side. So the 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 performer inside the chicken is is his posture is odd, and and you can tell. I mean, if, if you're looking for it, I don't I don't imagine that like anybody could tell in 1977. But like you can tell that that is the costume that Harvey Corman wore with his face sticking out of it and was not meant to be <laughs> a chicken puppet. Um, like the po- the performer's posture is really weird and he's keeping his head down to hide the hole that Harvey Corman's face stuck through. And when he turns to the side, you can really kind of see it. There's kind of like a, a void there. <laughs> it's a little bit weird. You know, again, it's like, it's HGTV. I'm like, I'm making gifts for the show. Like it's not, it's, I'm not criticizing it, but like you can tell if you're looking for it. And I was. Yeah. Um, and you're not so. wrong. I, I could tell yeah. even while watching on my phone that like, yeah. <laughs> there's a Harvey Corman shaped void in that puppet and in all our hearts. And of course, this costume will show up once again in one of my favorite scenes in the Muppets Take Manhattan. So uh, I have special love for this chicken costume. Yes. That is a nice moment in that movie. I will say, I really liked this the second time I watched it. Because when you know what's coming, like, they're actually, like, they're doing some really interesting storytelling. Like, the, the when the other birds arrive on the windowsill... Like there, there is a conversation happening between them and the canary in the cage that if you don't know what's coming, 
it's just like what what is what are these birds doing and what is this non-song that's happening and it's sort of confusing but if you when you know the punchline they're actually doing a really neat job of the birds being like what you're in a cage why are you in a cage dude come here this bird's in a cage we need to do something and then like the idea that they're somehow calling to the giant chicken to to help it um it's it's actually it's pretty cute but i don't know that it works on first viewing which is definitely a, a failure yeah, on first viewing, it's very much an experience of like, is something about to happen? Or is just this going to keep happening? <laughs> but yeah, they do have an expressive collection of birds who are expressing something. And it was fun to see the woodpecker who sang Leatherwing Bat last week with Judy Collins. There's a chicken and there's the duck. Always exciting to see the duck. And uh, three of the birds from the What Do You Say sketch on the Sex and Violence pilot. It's fun to see them all at the same time, even if they're not saying... Oh boy, and for crying out loud. Just wish it was a little shorter. <laughs> I was a little sad to not see the, the singing owl, because he seems like another one that they're really trying to make happen. Uh, mm. I'm sure we'll find that owl again. We've got another editorial by Sam the Eagle. Sam the Eagle has an editorial about nudity in the world today, and I could probably recite this to you from memory, because <laughs> when I had this on a tape that was taped off an album... As a kid, I thought it was the second funniest thing in the entire universe right after The Comedian's a Bear. It's not just people, although goodness knows that's bad enough. But animals too, even cute little doggies and pussycats can't be trusted. Underneath their fur, absolutely naked. (laughs) It's not just the quadrupeds either. Birds too, yes, beneath those fine feathers, Birds where nothing, nothing at all. At the end of this, Sam realizes that he is referring to his own nudity and he kind of crosses his feathers over his crotch and looks sideways and sidles off stage. Whereas on the album, this is a, it's a slightly different recording. And also at the end of it, he says, "Uh, could someone hand me a robe? Which is fun. I would like to note uh, that we learned from the wiki also that the, This speech was printed in the book accessory that accompanied the quote-unquote shifty eyes repaint of the Palisades action figure of Sam the Eagle. So I I love that there is a shifty-eyed variant of Sam, and I love that he's uh, got a book with his nudity speech. I'm glad he got that published. Good for him. Anything else to say about nudity? I'm for it. Um, fair enough. Uh, what have Statler and Waldorf got to say about nudity? Well, how do you feel about nudity? Well, personally, it always left me cold. (laughs) Favorite line of the week. Oh, hey, this is the end of the episode. (laughs) (laughs) We did it. So, uh, final thoughts? You know... I can't judge Kermit too hard because I just remembered that before I was officially diagnosed with swine flu, I did a really disastrous band gig with swine flu. I wrote a funny article about it, but we'll put it in the show notes. Wonderful. I loved it. Who was your favorite? Who else? The frog. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. We'll be back next week to discuss the Edgar Bergen episode. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Mumpeturgy or on the web at Mumpeturgy.com. 
you like what we're doing, please spread the word and offer a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. Our theme music was composed for four by Power. Our show logo was created by Todd Ryan Packus. This episode was edited by me, David Levy. I don't know if you guys could hear the toilet flushing in the other room, but I'm going to say that again.